Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 8th, 2016. This is episode 1705, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, the Monster Show of the Week Expert Council is in session, and uh, I've got uh, six expert council calls lined up for you today. Really great ones, some people we didn't hear from toward the end of the year much. Um... Expert Council is jazzed up about taking your questions, so keep them coming. Remember, I've now split the council shows. We have a council of 13, so I do six to seven a week, and each council member then is featured twice a month. That makes their lives easier. I do all the questions at the first of the month and send them in, so just know this. If you send me a council question now... Uh, unless there's extenuating circumstances and I punt it over right away, the, rap, the quickest that they'll get it will be the next month's show. So it's only two per council member per month. To increase your odds of getting one of your questions answered, come up with questions from multiple council members. And remember, if, uh, if you throw a council question, it doesn't seem to show up, you can always toss it to me too separately, and it might get on a, on a Thursday show or, or a Monday show. Anyway, with that, before we get to your expert council questions, remember the way to submit your questions, send me an email, TSP Expert Council in the subject line, TSPC Expert Council in the subject line. Tell me your question. Please use the full name in your email of the person that you are asking the question to. Please send me a question for a single council member if you want to send a uh, a question, if you wanted to send me a thing and said, like, either Nick Ferguson or, or, or uh, Ben Falk could answer this question, it's okay, but I'm going to end up picking one, uh, and you might want to really tell me which one you want. The reason I say to make sure you use their name, I always go and find my questions at the beginning of the month by searching in Outlook for the person's name in the folder. I keep them all in. So if you just put Nick, I might look for Ferguson. Got it? So... It makes sense to make sure you, their last name is what I usually use. Make sure their last name's in the email. If you want to know who our expert council members are, you can go to the survivalpodcast.com under the About tab. You'll see an option to meet our expert council. And in all the expert council shows, there's a link to that page as well, as well as all the council members are listed where you can learn more about them. With that, before we get into your questions, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Uh, what are you going to get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason? Shockingly enough, you can get Berkey water filtration systems from Jeff because he is the Berkey guy, the actual one, the only Berkey guy. There's a lot of places you can get a Berkey, but I only know of one Berkey guy, and I only know of one person with Jeff's fanatical dedication to his customers. Absolutely beyond belief how dedicated to customer service Jeff is and to making sure everybody gets uh, what they were expecting, and if there's a problem, it gets corrected fast and properly. Uh, Jeff's been with me as a sponsor for more than five years now. That's kind of unheard of in podcasting. It's really kind of unheard of in conventional radio, if you really think about it, to have sponsors stick with somebody that long. He does a great job for this audience. I, I haven't had any real complaints about him in five years. I had one person mad, but it was well, the post office did it, and there's only so much a person can do about the post office. Um, Jeff just takes care of everybody, and he has the, some of the best pricing available because those years of great customer service have made him one of the 
top distributors for Berkey in the world. So he gets some really great pricing that he passes along to you. He also has a lot of other really great stuff for your prepping needs. You'll find all his Berkey stuff and all his other great stuff, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storable foods at his website, Directive21.com. Again, the website for Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason, Directive, and the number's 21, followed by a dot and a com. Check him out today, and don't be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could deal with the original, the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor, and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you, and if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, Do not forget to get your premium membership 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year 1705, because the episode is 1705. Uh, Alex Shrugged has three queued up for us, uh, or two queued up for us at tspwiki.com. I have Halley's Comet and Death from the Skies. I also have the New Virginia Slave Code and a few notable mentions. I'm going to start out with a notable mention because it's an interesting notable mention that you wouldn't really think of how interesting it is if you just read it on its surface. Sophia of Hanover, Germany, is made a naturalized citizen of England. Uh, this makes her the heir apparent to the throne of England, but she will die two months before Queen Anne passes away, and Sophia's son will become King George I. Um, George I will be the father of George II, George II will be the last English king to be born a non-citizen or born outside of England. Um, 
and it will become back to more of a, an actual naturalized citizen thing for the lineage to the throne. That's not really that interesting, though. King George II, who is the son of George I, will have a grandson named King George III, who will secede his grandfather on the throne as the King of England, and will be the King of England at the time of the American Revolution. I think that's interesting anyway. Um, Halley's Comet, though, is what I'm going to read from the, the official se uh, uh, segment today. Using Sir Isaac Newton's orbital equations, Edmund Halley connects the sightings of a comet in the years 1456, 1531, 1607, and 1682, and declares them all the same comet, returning every 75 to 76 years. He predicts that the next appearance of the comet will be in the year 1759. Halley will be long dead by then, but his fellow astronomers will be waiting. On December 25th, 1758, the comet will be spotted by an amateur astronomer, and the comet will reach its closest approach to the sun March 13th, 1759. Informally, it will be known as Halley's Comet, and in 1759, it will be made official. My take by Alex Shrudd, the obvious significance of this prediction was that it provided proof of the validity of Newton's orbital equations. The non-obvious significance is that the comets became predictable chunks of debris flying through the sky instead of fearsome harbangers of doom. Finding one that showed up at predictable times when the comets were simply part of nature, no more mystical than the planets, the sun and the moon. In the modern day, such periodic visitors have become a source of fear once more. In 1910, people were certain the tail of Halley's Comet would brush the Earth's atmosphere and destroy all life. But we lived. The extinction of the dinosaurs was the result of an asteroid impact. Could we survive an impact with an asteroid when the dinosaurs could not? Some of us could, maybe. Luckily, the likelihood of such an impact is very, very small. This is one of those things that I don't suggest you prepare for a comet or an asteroid strike. But it is something that is going to happen at some point eventually. See, no, it doesn't matter that the, the odds are very, very low or that it's a very, very, very small chance. When you start taking a small chance across billions of years, sooner or later, you get one. And we've had more than one. And we've had some recent, relatively small ones, do some pretty impressive damage. And uh, there's a lot of instances throughout history of large bodies striking the Earth. Would we survive uh, an asteroid like the one that created the KT boundary, the one that killed the dinosaurs, in theory, anyway. Nobody's really proven that's the one thing that killed all the dinosaurs, okay? Um, maybe, maybe not. It depends on how accurate the predictions of what would happen and how accurate the reflections on what they think happened are. In some ways, it could be an extinction-level event if it did. You know what? I don't care. I don't care. I'm not worried about that. If that happens, my problems are over. I prepare for the things that we can actually prepare for. My take by Jack Spierko. Next up, I got a big announcement today. The TSP Business Directory is officially open for business full time. Uh, you can list your business for as little as $5. And we only charge that $5 as a token amount to keep the directory pure. When we first set up the directory, we started getting spam submissions almost immediately. As soon as you got to pay five bucks to be listed, all of like the porn sites and stuff like that that are just spamming everything with bots and stuff, go away. So it's five bucks for a basic listing. There's other sponsorship opportunities there, and it's a really great way to get exposure for your business. And here's what's going to happen starting next week. The business directory officially is going to be given a sponsorship shot, a spot on TSP. So if you're an entrepreneur, 
not only will you be listed in a directory with a, a site that thousands of people go to every day anyway, where we are promoting doing business within the community, you get once a week that directory will actually be promoted like a sponsor on the show. So it's a really great way for you guys that have smaller businesses to get exposure to the larger audience. And those of you that don't have businesses but want to do business with other people in our community, please use the directory. If nobody uses it, it's not worth anything. Now, the good thing is we know that even in like a, a soft beta, we didn't talk about it much. People were, we had people telling us, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm getting business from the directory already. Uh, but now we have like a silver, a gold, you know, level sponsorship program. Uh, we've got some premium listing things. We guarantee you top billing. And uh, it's pretty well filled out with some basic stuff already as far as availability, but we'd like more participation. Please consider being part of the directory. Next up, if you'd like to support this show, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. All I'm going to say about that today, I talk about it enough that you know all about it and what it is. Remember, there's certain people get a discount, service-level discount for military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders, and you should know how to get that discount by now. If not, email me and I'll tell you. Anyway, because I want to get rolling with the, the uh, council show today, because this should be a great one. Uh, we're coming out of the gate, first council show of the new year. And uh, here's the, uh, the first question I have for a council member today. I'm actually going to throw this one just on over to Paul Wheaton. Paul's got a pretty exciting thing he's doing with his forum uh, with involving pie and some other really cool stuff he's jazzed about. He cheated. I, I give council members 10 minutes. And since we cut the show in half, I actually have given him like a grace period of 12. He went 13. <sighs> but Paul can't say anything quickly because he's got so much to say. So we're going to start out with Paul and give him that one minute erase period. And Mr. Wheaton, what is going on in the wilds of Montana? It's probably pretty cold up there right now. Tell us, oh, sir, Duke of the Dukedom of Wheatonville. What's going on up in Montana, Paul? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton and... Jocelyn. Hi, TSP folks. <laughs> um, uh, from Permese.com with another update of what's going on at Wheaton Labs. And uh, uh, first, I want to mention the Pi program because you said, hey, mention the Pi program. And so uh, Pi is Permaculture Inner Circle Elite. And and uh, while that sounds very elitist, it totally is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's based upon the MSB program, uh, which, Jack, thank you so much. Uh, what was it, like three or four years ago that you and I were on the phone on a non-podcast thing? And you were saying, you were telling me that I really need to get a mailing list going and I really need to do something like MSB. And so I did get the mailing list going and it's taken me this long to get something like MSB going. Um, and, uh, we, we worked it into the forums in such a way that, um, there's, there's little pictures of pies. <laughs> <laughs> huckleberry. They look huckleberry. They, they look huckleberry, don't they? And uh, I, I actually, <laughs> I, I drew that myself. <laughs> so anyway, um, they're set up in such a way. So like, not only can you get access to the Pi program, and we're currently starting to try and do the thing that you do with vendors, um, but you can give other people Pi. Uh, and there's a bunch of features that are built into the software that you get in addition to all of that. But uh, you can give other people pie, uh, and and most of all, if somebody writes a post that really helps you, you can give them a piece of pie, and it's much cheaper. It's it's like two dollars per piece of pie, which gives you a month of um, bonus features and stuff like that. Or you can get a full pie um, for I think it's eighteen dollars, um, and that covers for a full year. Uh, so <clears throat> as we get better and better at this, maybe we'll raise our rates to be equivalent to the member support brigade. Um, and Jack, I gave you a whole bunch of pies. You're welcome to hand those out to your peeps if you want. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, um, all right. And we did a full overhaul of the forums. Uh, wow. Totally new look and feel. Very image centric. Um, uh, lots of stuff about the best of the year, best of the month. Uh, uh, and we have the ability to add more and more forums. So far, um, uh, we've got metrics to show like the number of posts and the number of posts per day per week is way up. I think people, I mean, granted, some people are like, I don't like it. But I think for every person that doesn't like it, we've got five that do. Yeah. I want the old one back. <laughs> well, I think being image-centric is crucial with this day and age. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah, yeah. And for all the stuff in homesteading and permaculture that go on, I mean, it, oh, pictures, yeah. a picture is a thousand words for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So this has been, I think, I think it's been excellent. I'm, and we're adding new features like every week. It's, it's been. You've got some really great development help right now. Yeah. 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 I hope it lasts Uh because this has been awesome. Uh Um, and I want to also point out because Jack, I know that your presentations in the past have been very much like, okay, you live out in the woods. How do you earn an income? And so we've actually created a bunch of new forums along these lines. Now, we've always had the forum financial strategy, but we've created uh, four new ones. Um, uh, cottage industry, uh, which, of course, is something that you cover in great depth. Uh, agile work. This is for, like, if you're going to work via the Internet, but you're going to continue to have a job via the Internet. Well, yeah, it can be your own business can be agile. Your work for an employer can be agile. So it kind of is all of those. The idea is that you can do the work from anywhere. Yeah. And so you can do it while you're still in the city, while you're making your devious plot to get the hell out of there, Mm -hmm. uh, off to homesteading. uh, Or, you know, stay there. I mean, it it opens your options. You become more flexible. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's what that whole forum is about. Um, and then we've got one on crowdfunding because, uh, not only have I done some crowdfunding, but a lot of people have done crowdfunding and, and the crowdfunding forum already has thousands of posts. Mm-hmm. And this has been a big one for a lot of, uh, permaculture folks and a lot of homesteaders is to, uh, is to have income from crowdfunding. And then the jewel of the whole bunch, the thing that I'm so incredibly passionate about that I think really gives people freedom is residual income streams. And this is where you do some kind of work. And then you have a trickle of income uh, every year, and you could go and live in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And then when you come back after years of being gone, your bank account is fatter. Um, residual income streams are the thing I so strongly recommend, but I think people just really struggle to get started in that. So we've already got hundreds of posts there about residual income streams. I think this is this is the one. This is the big one for everybody. All right, mm-hmm. Wheaton Labs. Um, I think that uh, uh, there's, there's stuff going on. I've got lots and lots to say, but I, I'm going to try and focus on like, okay, in the Red Cabin, the Minnie Mouse Rocket Mask Heater has now been installed into the Red Cabin and is currently running. Uh, the Red Cabin's been insulated. So the Red Cabin is now a whole other winter structure, whereas before right. <laughs> it was a shed. <laughs> oh, yeah. We had people there last winter, but it was it was pretty rough living. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and And – Burned a lot of electric heat with the space heater in there. And now, <laughs> yeah, so, so now good old rocket mass heater stuff. Um, huh. Now, this time, I mean, we've it's been kind of weird. In Montana, usually snow will hit the ground and it'll melt off in a few days, and then snow will hit the ground and melt off in a few days. But this has been kind of bizarre. We've been had snow on the ground for weeks now. Kind of shin height. You know, not not feet and feet like some areas get, but this is a lot for us to have it. You know, mid shin height. Yeah. For weeks. So it's kind of like a fair bit. 
Yeah. And it just keeps sticking around, which is really kind of odd. Um, but now in the winter for Montana, now's the time to uh, uh, start gathering wood for projects that doesn't need to be peeled. Uh, junk pole for junk pole projects, dominantly junk pole fence, um, and logs for berm shed, stuff that you're not going to peel the logs. And, there, and you could peel the logs. But it's like 20 times easier if you harvest it in the spring instead of right now. Well, and my uh, uh, builder I know, um, a roundwood timber frame guy, he actually prefers peeling when the cadmium is dormant because he thinks the logs, it's harder, but the, they're less likely to mold. Oh, that's true. Mold and mildew. Because while the, the, mm-hmm. the bark comes off, like if you do it in spring, like mid-spring, early spring, yeah. the bark just falls off. Yeah, because the cadmium is so soft and active. Um, is, and, that that, is that it? Cadmium layer? Is well, that now what? that you're saying that, I'm, I'm sure that's not it. It's not I'm saying it wrong. I'm saying it totally wrong. Xylem and phloem layer. Uh, uh, cambium. Cambium yeah. layer. Not, yes, yes. Yeah, cadmium is a metal. <laughs> and so it's it's full and it's squishy and it's 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 yeah. weak. Yeah. And you could just slap at that bark and it pretty much falls right off. But you're right. Molds it and will, it will. It's bait for mold and mildew and you get spotty logs. It's sugary. Yeah, and it's but it but it is so crazy easy. and it's like but after you've peeled a few logs, then you start to think, man, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but for almost any project, it's like first you got to gather up your logs, and it's like oh, you don't want to gather logs because you're a wuss, and a wuss of course is a euphemism for something else, but. Uh, then, then it's like, okay, go buy the lumber. And then you're like feeling pain one way or the other. True. And, and so I kind of feel like you got to do the, I mean, you got to get your log pile. You got to get your materials together for whatever it is you're going to build. Um, all right. This is also the time of year for milling, uh, lumber. So, you know, for dimensional lumber with a sawmill and we've got a swing blade sawmill here. Um, and, uh, it's an electric swing blade, which is very rare, uh, uh-huh. and, uh, it's, it's solar powered. Um, well, I think it's very cool. Um, <clears throat> all right. And of course, working on stuff indoors, but now, um, one of the ants here, Evan, uh, who has posted skillions of pictures of all of his project and he's a big fan of ducks. He's got lots of ducks. Um, he is putting together what he's called, um, uh, I think, Originally, when he talked to me about it, it was the peasant program, but then it also, because it's like a permaculture experience, it's an acronym, permaculture experience, AVA, AVA which mm-hmm. I never quite got my head wrapped around that. AVA is the name of his ant village plot. Okay. Yeah. He lo- he loves naming things, and mm-hmm. each little section of his plot is named something else within AVA. So then there'd be the letter S, and then ant, and so you end up with peasant. Yes. And so I thought peasant was good, but then he yes. started saying P- not urine pee, but like a legume. P-E-A. P-E-A. Permaculture experience. <laughs> like yeah. Yeah. But all right. So then the idea is these are like 60 bucks a week, but it's like these are basic skills. These, this mm-hmm. is not the advanced stuff, but I think that uh, uh, it's, it's kind of cool. We've got a lot of people showing interest in it, but the best part is, is that each week has a theme mm-hmm. and he has set up Spearco Week. For March 15th to 20th. Now, he's got a bunch happening before then and a couple happening after then that other people might be interested in. But it's kind of like, you know, for the Spearco people that are in this general region, they might want to come and spend a week. Uh, and they all, everybody stays in Wafati 0.8. It's kind of, I suggested it as a slumber party, but I, I don't think anybody coming for Spearco week would want to call it that. I'm going to a slumber party. <laughs> 
Um, <clears throat> I think that the in the end of January there's uh, Artists Week, and uh, they're going to fire up our new rocket kiln. Um, and and do some because we've got clay, we've got mm-hmm. lots of clay, and so there's going to be so artist week, and mid February there's a couples week, but yeah, March fifteenth to twentieth is Spirko week, um, and I think that there's a limit to about eight people for each one, um, and the kind of skills I try to go through it and find out what skills he's hoping to give everybody experience in, tool sharpening, uh, with a focus on axes, draw knives, and chainsaws, um, dropping a tree. Um, probably dropping lots of trees, but everybody will probably get a chance to drop their own tree. Um, and then uh, firewood from tree to rocket mass heater. Uh, and plus, will be experience with like oodles of different kinds of rocket mass heaters. I think we have twelve rocket mass heaters right now. I think so too. The, uh, there's a great thread for that. <laughs> and if you've never started a rocket mass heater, it's very different from starting a conventional <laughs> wood stove. Yes. So, <laughs> so that's a great experience right there. Oh, and then if people sign up for the uh, for the pie program, they can see the care and feeding of rocket mass heaters. That's like a freebie that's uh-huh, in there. Cool. It's normally just for the our video. Kickstarter. Yeah, the video. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's normally like, I think we charge like five bucks or something for it, but it's free for pie people. Um, making uh, not only the junk pole fence stuff, so people will get experience with junk pole fence. And right now, you know, as I mentioned, is a great time to be gathering up the materials for that. But also possibly making rock jacks, um, which is a structure that's for where you can't put a pole in the ground at the time. Uh, three log bench. I think that one's a big one. That one's kind of like a little bit of your most basic roundwood timber framing stuff. You got to mm-hmm. shape the log a little bit and click them together like Lincoln logs to have a three log bench. Uh, fermentation, so food fermentation. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's one of your favorite topics. Yep. Knot tying, plant ID, archery. That one seems to fit with Jack's uh, crew. I know. Evan was feeding the pigs or chops, mm-hmm. um, chipmunks <laughs> that he he harvested with his bow and arrow. And I think that that's part of it is that there will be killing and eating small furry furry animals, and I imagine <laughs> it'll be through archery. Um, so. Uh, Plus a two-hour ta- a two-hour tour on the lab, a two-hour tour of base camp, and uh, some green woodworking basics. Uh, maybe uh, carving a spoon or a mallet, putting together a mallet. Uh, and there's different kinds of mallets you could make. <clears throat> and I think we're going to fire up the swing blade sawmill, and people will get a chance to experience that. Yeah, Evan and Sharla are incredibly bright, incredibly positive, with really infectious passions for these kind of things. And Kai, um, who is also living at Ava, will will be helping too. And that's it. We're out of time. Bye. Thanks, Jack. Bye. <laughs> Great stuff, as always, from Paul. I, I really, at some point, need to get up there. I, I do. Um, I've been to Paul's place once, and it was only for a few hours because of the, the, the situation that was going on. I wasn't really there to see Paul. I was there for the Dave Jackie workshop where we did the design for the uh, the, uh, the the food forest in downtown Helena. And uh, Paul's a great guy, man, and I, I need to figure out how to spend some time up there. I can tell you it ain't going to be this winter. Number one, Jack don't do Montana winter. And number two, unless it's like early heading into winter and I'm going to be shooting elks or something, I, I don't go this time of year. And number two, this is this is the odd thing. I, I was talking to Kevin from Perma Ethos yesterday, and I said, you know, just like you guys up there scramble in fall because you've got to be ready for winter, we here in North Texas – 
scramble in winter and early spring because we've got to be ready for summer. We've got to get all the things that we need done to make sure that everything's stable and okay and nothing's going to die at this wholly opposite time of year you do because, well, nobody wants to work in the heat here, and once the heat comes, it's too late for a lot of things. So it's not a good time for me to travel, but, man, i got to get up there and see, see uh, Paul. Uh, anyway, next up today I have a question for Keith Snow, and this one is basically on how do I store things like I have, like you would a root cellar if I don't have a root cellar. Keith, what say you on this one? Hey, Chef Keith Snow from HarvestEating.com. I wanted to answer Mike's question, which is what suggestions do you have for storing foods that are kept in root cellars if you don't have a root cellar? Now, that's an interesting question. Mike and uh I think a lot of people in the audience are in the same boat as you. They you know get further and further into this prepping and homesteading and um eventually you're gonna get to the fact that you want to grow things and store them. You know, this is kind of the the evolution, so to speak, of of food storage. Most people will start, they'll can a few things and then maybe they'll get a dehydrator, that's all great. Um and then they'll have a deep freezer and well what about you know, crops that you grow. What if you grow a bumper crop of potatoes or cabbage? How can you store that without, you know, um, doing a cooking method like canning or preserving or freezing or vacuum packing? Now, in the old days, they root cellared it, as you've probably done in your research. And root cellars are definitely coming back into fashion. Now, uh, I want to let everybody know, if you go over to um, harvest eating and on the right side there's a tag cloud and if you just look find the tag cloud or the tag TSP somewhere in there you're going to see an article that I'm putting up um, specifically to provide some further resources for you guys and gals out there about root cellaring and some really great links so do check that out or just go to the search bar and just put root cellar and you should be able to find it now um a lot of people are building root cellars, and I, I have a great interest. As a matter of fact, sitting right over on my chair in the studio here is a book on root cellaring that I actually bought from Amazon, was a little disappointed in the book, mainly because the pictures were lame, sort of just illustrations. I, I bought it off of Amazon. I like to see a lot of photos, but some good information in there. And the bottom line is, why does root cellaring work? Well, basically... You know, the, the thing here is that foods are kept, number one, dark, because you don't understand how light affects things. Even, you know, if you've got canned foods that are in glass jars and they're in your pantry and there's a window and the sun is going to move throughout the sky, at some point, maybe they're going to be in direct sunlight. Sunlight will really mess up your foods. It will start to change the color and it doesn't necessarily mess up the taste, but it will change the color of some things. Now, this is why keeping things dark is important. Now, the next thing, and this is where the trouble comes in, is cool. Now, I was in Germany in 2003 in my wife's uncle's house. And this is a situation where the, the this town was, you know, 12th century type town with a wall around it called Dinkelspiel. It's in um, Bavaria. It's where my mother-in-law comes from. This is a house that she grew up in in 2003. And this was a five-story house inside the walled city. And the walls of the house were three feet thick. And it was timber frame and just unbelievable. And then it had a basement that you would go down. And it was pretty amazing because that was the year, if you guys and gals remember, in 2003, 
was a historic heat wave in Europe. I think the number was over 10,000 people died in Paris that didn't have air conditioning and also in Germany. I mean, they're not big on air conditioning there. And trust me, I know because we roasted. It was, it was in the triple digits pretty much 90% of the time we were there for three weeks and it was miserable. And they don't have ice cubes or screens. So <laughs> believe me, when I got back to Pittsburgh on the plane from Frankfurt, the first thing I did was go get myself an iced tea that was loaded with ice because it was the first cold drink I had because they just don't do ice cubes there. And um, it's just interesting. But what, what the reason I tell you about how hot it was is inside this house, you would walk from a, a triple-digit day and you walk into the house and it was – you know, 74 in there. And it was like, wow, this is amazing how well insulated this place is. And that's all that thermal mass from the thick walls and the, the floors are made out of stone. And then you go down the basement and you want to talk about cold. I mean, it was about 58 degrees in the basement on a year round, maybe a couple degrees colder in the winter, but 100 degrees out, 58 in the basement. Now, in that basement, this was even in 2003, um, Uncle Heine, as he's, as he's called, he recently sold the house, which totally depressed me because it was not for a lot of U.S. dollars. I, I would have thought it would have been like a $900,000 place, but he sold it because he just didn't want to take care, of, take care of it anymore. And, I mean, he has other nieces and nephews right there in the town. I'm surprised nobody would want the house, but that's neither here nor there. The point is, is that you could go down in that basement in 2003, and, of course, he had the place loaded down with beer. And um, in Germany, most of these little smaller villages, they drink the beer that they make in the town, period. There's no, you know, you don't go to the to the beer section or the beer garden of the supermarket or liquor store and find 70 varieties of beer. There was one brewery, and it had two or three brews, and that's what was in his basement. And, uh, and it was awesome because it was nice and chilled, but also he had potatoes down there and onions and other foods that they would buy and in this town a guy would pull up in a in a little station wagon with potatoes in the back and he would ring a bell and you could buy your potatoes from him. they were right out of the field and believe me the germans can do things with potatoes and they grow potatoes that we just don't have here now their their kind of yellow potato is nothing like something you get here and uh probably just better soil i don't know maybe it's not the case anymore but in 2003 those potatoes were amazing and he was fortunate, Mike. He had this basement um, with giant thick walls, and it was very cool. And that is the second important thing. I talked about it being dark. It's very dark down there, no light at all, and it was cool. And, you know, he was about, I would say, it was probably about 55 on an average day down there. But because it was so hot, I think it might have been around 58, we took down a little thermometer. Um, but it was pretty amazing, and, and the foods there lasted for months and months and months. Now, I've also had apples, and in November, first week in November, I went and bought a couple of bushels of apples a few years back, and I stored them in uh, – it was a laundry room that we had at the time, and this thing – there was no insulation. It had an outdoor uh, – it had a door going outside, and there was no insulation. It was freezing in there cold. And I put those apples in there. I bought them. They were right off the tree, about a bushel, maybe two bushels. And I had probably, I would say at least 90 days where those apples were super fresh because it was cold and dark in there. And 
that is the the real key. You know, damp doesn't hurt either. You don't want overly humid, but you don't want dry. You want it to be kind of dark, cold, and a little bit humid to store things like that. Now, what do you do if you don't have those conditions? Well, you know, I'm not a magician. I, I can. You're not either. If you don't have a basement or you can't put them in the garage because uh, you'll probably, I don't know where you live, but they might freeze. They can't get under about 38 degrees. Otherwise, you'll start to get some cold damage to them. So there's not a lot that you can do unless maybe, what do you have a crawl space? If you have a crawl space, then you could probably work it because a, a crawl space that's at least um, sealed off is not going to get all that cold down there. So you could do things in a crawl space, and I've done that before myself. Um, closed up the vents on the crawl space, and it, it would, you know, in the January, no, but in the couple of, you know, maybe November and December, it wouldn't get all that cold down there. Um, so things wouldn't freeze, but uh, like I said, the magic number is about 38 degrees, really 35 degrees. You don't really want to go under that. And if you don't, if you're on a slab, then you have no crawl space on top of it. What could you do? There's not much. I mean, you can just put them in the back of your pantry in the dark and kind of hope for the best. But without those conditions, there's not really a lot that you can do, at least that I'm aware of, to kind of mimic, um, you know, those conditions that you'd find in, in a proper root cellar. Maybe you can build one someday on your on your property. But, um, you know, it's very labor-intensive to build. And, you know, if you live in a neighborhood, you might have one of those dreaded HOAs and have some pokey pain in the neck telling you what you can and can't do. You might not be able to dig a hole in the side of the hill. If you're out in the country, that's a different story. And it's definitely something that I'd like to do someday is to build a root cellar because they're, um, they're pretty exciting, but that's what I have to offer. I, you know, and I, and I wish, um, I wish I could tell you the magic answer is even though you don't have a basement, a crawl space or anything like that, you can do X, Y, Z. I mean, I have seen some people put, um, in their floor between the joists in their pantry, you know, let's say that hardwood floor, they took a skill saw and, you know, cut between the joists a long rectangle and then they popped up the floor in one piece and hinged it and whatever and down in that, you know, removed the insulation and down in there they put special um, plastic trays that had perforations in them and they would put things in there so they were under the floor didn't take up any room and they were benefiting from the crawl space um, these were houses on crawl space the, the cool cool and dampness of a crawl space and no light so I've seen that done but aside from that I don't, I don't think I can offer you um, much more on that so I hope that helped Mike, uh, if anybody has any questions, whether it be cooking questions, whatever, feel free. You can email me, Keith at harvesting.com, and I'll do my best to get those answered. And as always, folks, I appreciate your support of Harvest Eating. Um, the spices are in stock in the Harvest Eating store, and uh, also the sauces are on Amazon.com. And with that, thanks for supporting Jack and for supporting Harvest Eating. Take care, everybody. I actually have a little bit of an assist that I can I can provide here if you're if you have space that you can make into a cool room like a walk-in cooler. And I'm going to tell you how to do that for about $300ish dollars uh plus the cost of a small highly efficient air conditioner and some insulation. 
And uh, that does mean that you would need to, whatever this place is, have a penetration that goes to the outside. So it might be something that you build as a standalone enclosure in a garage, for instance, would be a way to do this. Though if it were inside the home, it would benefit from your central AC, etc., during the summer. But in a garage, it would still be able to work quite well, especially highly insulated. And this is all because of another expert council member, the guy we just heard from that I even knew about this, and it clicked in my head while I was listening to Keith. Oh, oh, I know. It's called the CoolBot. It's $329 on Amazon, and you can basically trick a window-style unit air conditioner into believing that it needs to be on when it, in fact, does not need to be on. And you could set this to whatever temperature you want, and there's people that have used it to get down near the freezing mark. Um, but there's a video of a guy that keeps this about 50 degrees, and that would be a pretty good temperature, cellar temperature, to do a lot of this stuff, you know, in that 40 to 50 degree area. And the smaller, obviously, the space, the easier it will be to maintain that. So you could make a walk. Now, Paul's guy made a cheese cave in a closet. And it's pretty cool. So I'll just have a link to that in the video. And then there'll be a link in the show notes where you can find the CoolBot on Amazon. You don't have to buy it through my link or whatever, but at least you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. If you can get a better price on it somewhere or whatever, fine. But it's on Prime for $329, shipped for free if you're a Prime member. So I just wanted to throw that in there. The next thing we have is a question for Erica Strauss on fermenting on the lines of, How long can we store lacto-fermented foods in the refrigerator? What happens if they are stored longer than recommended time? Uh, do they go continue to ferment? Do they get bad? Can they make you sick? That type of thing. This is from Susan. And uh, Erica, what say you on the, the duration of storing your lacto-ferments? Hi, Jack. Hi, TSP community. This is Erica from Northwest Edible. Uh, just really quick, I just want to say Happy New Year. Happy 2016 to everyone in the TSP community. I just have a really good feeling about 2016 uh, for anyone out there who is trying to build themselves that better life, as Jack says. So Happy New Year to everyone. And um, now on to this week's question. So uh, Susan is my question asker of the week, and she wants to know how long ferments can be kept in the fridge and about the expiration date on fermented foods and if ferments kept past the recommended time become unsafe to eat. So Susan, this is a really great question. The short answer is that fermented vegetable foods do not ha really have any kind of formal expiration date for safety um, and they typically make it pretty obvious when they've gone off and should no longer be eaten. So as you know, fermented vegetables like we make are living things. So they respond to their environment and everything from the amount of salt used in the ferment to the speed of the initial fermentation, the temperature of your storage, even the volume of the ferment you keep in one container can all have an impact on the lifespan of your ferments. For me personally, if I tell you in a recipe, for example, that a ferment can be stored in the fridge for, say, three to six months, then six months is probably the bare minimum that I would expect a ferment to stay in great shape, assuming that that initial fermentation went smoothly. 
But personally, I would never throw out a ferment at six months and one day just because we'd passed some arbitrary mark. These are guidelines that recipe writers like me have to put in recipes so that our editors and our editors' legal departments stay happy, to be completely honest about it. So feel free to treat these use-by dates as a guideline when it comes to fermented foods. Uh, what I do and what I think you should do, too, is know the sign of a ferment that's gone bad. And typically, it's quite clear. So if you see signs of spoilage, yeah, then you want to compost your ferment. But if there are no signs of spoilage and the ferment still tastes good to you, go ahead and continue to enjoy it. So let's hit some details. What happens as ferments mature is that their flavor and texture change. So typically older ferments are stronger and tangier in flavor and softer in texture. But there's no one day when all those little lactobacillus and beneficial bacteria just up and die, leaving you with an unsafe ferment. What happens is that as the fermented foods age, there's this sort of continuum as successive generations of different bacteria colonize your ferment. And in a healthy ferment, all of the bacteria that are colonizing your ferment are good guys that you want there. But as the ferment ages, the lactobacillus that's pumping out that protective lactic acid can begin to give way to other microbes that will start to break down the ferment in an undesirable way. And generally what happens is that these microbes will turn your vegetables very slimy and you'll get more of a rotting quality than a pickled quality. But, you know, I do want to emphasize that in a properly made ferment, this is very rare. And when it does happen, it generally takes a very long time to happen. And it's very obvious when things like this have happened. So those normal signs of maybe a little bit more tangy and a little bit softer, those signs of maturity in a ferment are nothing to be worried about from a safety standpoint. And if you like eating softer, tangy, you know, nine-month-old sauerkraut, there is nothing to worry about as long as there's no sign of spoilage. It's perfectly safe to do so. So let's talk about those specific signs of spoilage in a jar of fermented food so you know what to watch out for. First, how does your ferment look? It should be a uniform color throughout and shouldn't show signs of your ferment turning gray or brown or pink at the top of the jar. These are signs that kind of color change at the top is signs that spoilage may have set in at the top of the ferment where it's exposed to air. And this is a lot more likely to happen if your ferment hasn't been covered in brine. So even in the fridge, that's something to be a bit careful about. You want to keep those jars topped up with brine or keep the ferment weighted down under your brine. There's no need to kind of go crazy and put an airlock on every jar in your fridge or anything like that, but just keep an eye on that brine level. And if it looks like it's getting uh, lower than the vegetable level, just top it up a little bit. Now, it's normal for fermented foods to either fade or darken a little bit, depending on the vegetable, when you compare the ferment to the sort of fresh vegetable equivalent. My uh, tomato salsa that I ferment, for example, darkens as it ages, and this is really normal. And sometimes you'll get almost a translucent quality as your ferment ages, um, especially with things like sauerkraut. My sauerkraut cabbage will turn like less opaque as it gets older. But in any event, any color change you notice in your ferment should be fairly subtle and it should be uniform throughout the ferment. So if you see any bands of different color in your ferment, that's not a good sign. 
And then another thing you want to look for is mold. Your ferment should not have mold or mold spores growing on it. I know some of the old timers will just scoop the mold off the top and keep on trucking with their ferment. But honestly, if you're doing small batch ferments like you describe, I really wouldn't mess with anything growing mold. I just compost a ferment that had mold growing on it. We know now that the root hairs of the mold can reach quite far down into a spoiled food by the time we see the first mold colony on the surface. And while there are some molds that are harmless or even beneficial in some settings, others produce spores that you really don't want in your home, much less on your food. So unless you're a mold expert, I really think you should take a better safe than sorry approach with any ferment that's gone moldy. All right, second, how does that ferment smell? Fermented foods have this normal, healthy smell that you would describe as funky, but in this case, there's kind of good funky and bad funky. If your ferment has been taken over by spoilage bacteria or yeast, you might notice an unpleasant brewery or vinegar or kind of wine type of smell. That's generally not a good sign if you smell that. And if your ferment smells like rotten eggs, that's quite bad. And if it has a strong, musty, mushroomy kind of damp cellar smell, that's another thing I'd be concerned about. In general, although healthy ferments can smell quite pungent and tangy, they smell clean. And as you ferment, just smell your own ferments regularly so that as they age, you know what that normal baseline smell is. And if you stick your nose into a ferment one day and your reaction is, oh, no, that's definitely not normal. And trust me, if it's not normal, you'll know it'll smell different. Then your ferment is off and you're going to want to chuck it. Third, you want to check the texture of your ferment. If it looks good and smells good, your ferment is almost certainly fine. But to be sure, just look at the texture. You want your vegetables to still have a little bit of tooth to them in the ferment. They won't be crisp like a fresh vegetable, of course, but they shouldn't be in any way mushy or slimy. If the vegetables are getting soft over time but still kind of retain their integrity, that's fine. I mean, that's really a matter of preference, not food safety. But anything that you see that's slimy or really decayed in texture, cucumbers that seem rotten in the middle, anything like that. That's bad, bad, bad. Throw those out. But if your ferment gets high marks on visual and smell and texture inspection, go ahead and dig in and enjoy it, even months and months later. This is one of those areas where it's just better to observe and trust yourself and your own judgment than to follow what can be some pretty arbitrary expiration date suggestions that probably don't mean too much for your individual ferments. Okay, Susan, I hope this helps uh, clarify a little bit what you should and should not be worried about with your ferments as they go through their natural aging process. And uh, I hope I can encourage you to keep your ferments as long as they last and not throw them out prematurely. Thank you guys so much. Keep those questions coming, and I will talk to you in a couple weeks. Eric is awesome. I just love having her as part of the expert council. Anyway, um, next question I have is for Darby Simpson, and it's a, it's an important question that a lot of people don't think about until they get into the business of raising uh, livestock. And sooner or later, it ends up being a problem, and it's rodents uh, getting into your feed, and then just the problems they create by being there. And then eventually, you know, if you have rodents around, they get into things like your own stuff. So the question comes from John who says what is the what are the best rodent proof storage containers for human and animal feeds and I'll uh, let Darby handle that so Darby would say you surely this is an issue you've had to make sure you've addressed as well we addressed it mostly with two cats that kill them but the larger the operation the more difficult that is to be a single solution so Darby what say you on this one hey Jack this is Darby Simpson 
calling in to answer John's question about what is the best rodent-proof food storage container uh, to use for animal feeds and also for uh, human feeds. Um, John, uh, what we have used here for a long time for animal feeds, I've never used them for human food, but uh, for animal feed are some 55-gallon metal drums. Uh, They have a metal lid, and they also have a locking ring that locks that lid to the drum. And we picked these up years and years ago, actually back in 2007. Had to stop and think about the year there. Uh, The first year I started farming, I bought those to store chicken feed in. And um, uh, all they... Are, uh, were some drums from a local packing plant that uh, would pack the uh, silicone into the little caulking tubes like you put in a caulking gun. That stuff actually shows up in a 55-gallon drum, and there's a, a plant nearby that, that you know packages it all up uh, for retail. And they were selling these metal drums, I forget now, I want to say for like $4 a piece or $5 a piece. And I went down there and bought a truckload of them, as many as I could get in an 8-foot truck bed. And we have been using them ever since. Uh, They're starting to get a little bit rusty, but they don't have any holes in them. They are waterproof and rodent-proof so long as you remember to seal that lid down all the way and put that locking um, ring on and we've yet to have an issue with mice or anything getting in those um, you could probably find something like that on Craigslist um, I've actually seen uh, very similar drums for sale at the local farm store uh, here in my hometown we have what's called a rural king which is um, a pretty big farm store here in the Midwest, similar to a tractor supply, only a little bit larger, and sometimes I'll actually see those things uh, for sale sitting out front uh, of that store, and I want to say they're like 10, 12 bucks, something like that. They're not very much. Uh, You might get lucky and find some uh, food-grade plastic versions. That's probably what I would suggest if you were going to store human food in them, but I will defer to Jack on that as I've not used him for that, but it would definitely be fine for any kind of animal feed that you would want to put up. So really, that's the best solution I have for you, man. Like I said, it's been really effective for us, and uh, it's really inexpensive, and they last a long time. We don't have ours in any kind of cover or anything. They're actually sitting out in the elements and they're getting ready to go into their ninth or tenth season of use this coming spring, and uh, they're holding up just fine. So I'd say that was a good uh, four bucks well spent on that storage solution. Anyway, John, that's what I got for you. Good luck, and I hope you find something cheap that will work out well for you. Uh, For anyone that would like to learn more about me, you can do so at my website at DarbySimpson.com. There are a number of free articles you can read out there on different things related to small-scale sustainable agriculture for pasture-based meat production. Uh, There's production, education, legal, financial, marketing, you name it, it's out there. It's all free. Knock yourself out. Learn something. For those of you interested in going deeper, I do offer one-on-one 
consultations uh, that can be as short as an hour or as long as three or four hours, depending on what you need. Um, if you're an MSB supporter through the Survival Podcast, you do get a 10% discount. Just check out the MSB section, and you'll find a discount code listed in there for those services. As always, Jack, thanks for kicking this question over to me. John, thanks for emailing it in. Hope you found it helpful. Everybody have a great weekend, and take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, that, that sounds great to me for your animal feed storage needs, especially on a smaller scale. Let me tell you what we do here real quick. I uh, use the uh, uh, something tough. It's like the, 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 the brand, the tough brand from Lowe's of uh, Rubbermaid-style garbage cans. Uh, the bigger one, they make them in two sizes, and they both fit the same rollable dolly. And uh, we have not yet had a rat or a mouse chew through one of those or their lids. And we use those for our duck feed, and we put them on the dollies, and that way we can move them around in the garage. And then they're kept in the garage. And I think the rat problem is extensively reduced in our garage. Uh, when Ralph the cat went away, all of a sudden, like six months later, the rats started showing up. But since the arrival of Fox and Dana, I haven't actually seen rat or rat sign for, for like, I'd say a good month. I think when they were kittens, they weren't up on it yet, but Fox has turned into this, like, little mini panther, and I think that uh, the days of rats breeding in the in the garage anywhere are over. Uh, even if they don't get the adults, they're going to hear and find and eat the baby. So I do believe in cats as a control method if possible. But that works really well. Um, the Just the generic 32-gallon metal Trash cans work really great. And for people that are small homesteaders like myself, that's that's sufficient. Uh, but it costs a lot more. So the steel drums, uh, we just had somebody that was talking recently, that I, I did an answer for, about being able to get steel drums for pretty cheap from a, a plant that does honey. And it turned out that they are food-grade uh, drums because they're not using liners. There's a little residual honey in them. So that would be another uh, good deal. You know, so that would be a great thing to do. Uh, and, and try to drive the cost down. Because I think the last time I bought a dolly and a garbage can uh, from Lowe's to add another one to our group, it cost me like 75 bucks for the two parts. And it isn't 100%. It's not, like, it's not the level of what steel would do. And if you're, you know, if you're storing, I think, five bags of feed, so 250 pounds fit in one of the big uh, garbage cans, so we can store 500 pounds of feed. And that might sound like a lot, but it's not. We go through about 30 bags of feed a month right now. So it, that doesn't even store you know enough to, to not go to the feed store once every 10 days right now. So we're going to have to add more. So having that, that lower cost point, I could see, especially as soon as you start moving to doing broilers or something like that. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take our next question. This one is for uh, John Pugliano uh, on commodity prices and what's going on with them right now. And I had two for John, and he said, I, I, I'd appreciate it if you're going to run one of mine this week that you run this one because I think that it's particularly um, fitting with with what's going on right now. So I'm interested to hear uh, what John has to say on this. And uh, this question comes from Robert. And the, the crux of the question, I'll let John handle the details, but can you please comment on the drop in the price of commodities and its implications on the overall economy? It, you know, you look at gas prices going down, you're like, yeah, that's good. But when you start looking at commodities across the board all going down, that's usually a leading economic indicator. So, uh, John, what have you to say on this one, man? 
Robert has a timely question. He's asking if I could comment on the drop in commodity prices and its implication on the overall economy. Well, commodities are known to go through boom and bust cycles. So let's review a little bit about what a business cycle is. Let's say you're starting out and the economy is relatively weak, so the Federal Reserve steps in, they cut interest rates, they reduce the amount of money that banks are required to have on hand so that the banks can lend more and put more dollars into the economy. Oftentimes, either directly or indirectly, the Federal Reserve, either through their own mechanisms or working through the Congress, they'll find ways to reduce the lending requirements. We saw that happen, for example, in the mid-2000s when they drastically reduced how much money you had to have for a down payment and who was qualified to get a loan. And so during these slow times in the economy, the Federal Reserve will do whatever they can. Uh, in recent years, we saw them doing quantitative easing where they actually bought government treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. That was something that would have been unheard of a decade ago. Some of the countries outside the U.S. are using negative interest rates. These are all the mechanisms that the banking industry uses to flood the market with cash and make money readily available during times of a slow economy. And then when that easy money gets out into the marketplace, consumers can buy more products, they can buy cars, they can take out student loans, they can buy electronic products. Consequently, that easy money and all that spending further stimulates the economy. Companies can then borrow more to invest in their business, hire more employees, buy automated equipment, make other types of capital investment to produce more products in a more efficient manner, which spurs more consumer spending and then more borrowing. And you see how this begins to snowball and the economy is heating up and it's doing very well. And then inflation sets in and commodity prices start to rise because there's a lot of consumption of raw materials. The steel mills all need iron ore, and they need to buy coal, and then all the consumers are commuting in their cars, and so they need more gasoline. There's houses being built, which require cement and lumber and copper, and then all the electronic products. They need copper and silver for their wiring and their semiconductors. And so the price of everything starts to get bid up. And about the time generally that you see commodities starting to peak out and starting to hit all-time new highs, that's also about the time that wages start to increase. And you see a lot of inflation in that part of the economy because the unemployment rate is very low and employers are forced to pay their employees more. Well, that's about the time that the Federal Reserve steps in. They start pulling back the easy money. They step up the borrowing requirements. They raise interest rates. They do reverse repos where they sell assets off their balance sheets. They do everything they can at this point to pull money out of the system or to make it harder to borrow money. That has a cooling effect on the economy. And generally, the first thing that starts to fall are commodity prices. Think back to 2008 before the economy fell apart. People were worried about peak oil, and a barrel of oil got up to about $145 a barrel. Well, then the economy started to fall apart, the housing bubble burst, the financial markets imploded, and within about six months, the price of oil had plummeted about 70%. So that's the start of the next downtrend. Things start to slow down. The Federal Reserve cuts interest rates. They make money more easy, and you have another business cycle start up. This pattern has played itself out over and over again since the Federal Reserve was created back in 1913. And we're seeing a similar thing play out right now with a little bit of a twist. 
You see, what's unusual about the business cycle that we're in right now is that commodity prices started to collapse before we saw the wage inflation be bid up. So right now, even though the unemployment rate is around 5%, it's historically pretty low, we're not seeing a substantial increase in the hourly wage or in general take-home pay. That's what's different this time around. The easy money cycle that we're seeing right now, it didn't start just with the stimulus package in 2008. At a minimum, it goes back to the recession that followed the terrorist attacks of 2001. At least since that time, we've had historically unprecedented easy money, and the only thing that's different about it this time is that when one type of stimulus doesn't work, they just double down and find another way to artificially pump money through the economy. Remember things like cash for clunkers or the auto bailouts or the massive expansion of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet to well over $4.5 trillion? Well, each time they do these things, they're getting a diminishing return. And so consequently, no matter how much our government or our central bank or the central banks around the world in China, in Japan, in Europe, no matter how much they tried to prime the pump, they just can't stimulate the global economy to grow more than about 3%. And that's a major problem because over the last 16 years, a lot of money has been loaned out and concentrated, particularly in China, to build factories, to manufacture products. And then from there back to other emerging markets and in North America and Europe, there's been a huge expansion and an investment in commodities to feed those factories with energy and with raw materials. So there's been a great deal of money invested in copper mines and iron ore mines, drilling on and offshore for oil. All these investments have been made with all the cheap and easy money that's been created over these last 15 to 16 years. And it took place in anticipation of China and Asia and the overall emerging markets with the anticipation that they would be growing at a 10 to a 12% annual growth rate. Well, the problem is that's just not occurring. China is probably only growing maybe 4 to 6%. The factories that they've built on borrowed money are running inefficiently and well under capacity because there isn't enough global demand for all those products. And then that trickles down to all the emerging markets and the commodity-generated markets that produce the copper and the iron ore and the oil and all those other commodities and energy products that have been developed to feed that demand in Asia. And so consequently, since we have an oversupply of energy and raw materials, the price has come down and it's come down sharply. And it's not a recent phenomenon. Oil prices, for the most part, as well as other commodities, have been in a steady decline since 2008. And so we see commodity and energy prices that are at 10 to 15-year lows. Now, that's good news for the consumer. I'm sure that you would rather be paying a dollar a gallon than $4 a gallon for gasoline. But where that's bad for the economy is all that easy money that built the factories and developed the mines and drilled the wells. Well, remember, that was all borrowed money. And since energy and commodity prices have collapsed anywhere from 60 to 80%, the companies that took out those loans are finding it very difficult to create the cash flow to pay the interest and the principal. And so where that will ultimately hurt the economy is if we have significant amounts of defaults and bankruptcies, we'll see that put a strain on the global financial system and companies and banks and maybe even some countries will be in default. Countries like Nigeria, Brazil, even Saudi Arabia are running up massive deficits right now 
because their economies are so dependent on commodities and on energy products. These are the factors that held back the market in 2015, and until they get resolved, there'll be a drag on the economy in 2016. As we start out the new year, the markets are reeling right now. Most of the headlines are putting the blame on the Chinese stock market. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think that's another symptom of the problem. The overall problem, though, is the slowdown in manufacturing and exports from China. That isn't going to change overnight. And I think the markets are going to be very volatile and maybe not hit their lowest point until we get through first quarter of 2016. So look towards the end of March or the beginning of April for things to stabilize. As I record this, the stock market is taking some significant hits. I wouldn't be at all surprised during this first quarter to see us test those lows that we hit back during the flash crash of August, if not maybe even go below them. But the key point that I'd like to make is that this is not a financial meltdown or there's not going to be an economic collapse. This is just part of the normal business cycle that occurs every five to eight years. It happens because, as we discussed, the Federal Reserve floods the economy with cheap money. That creates malinvestments. Bubbles develop in assets such as the stock market or such as the commodities markets. And then at some point, they have to reset themselves. And that's exactly what will occur this time. I don't know if it means that commodities are going to drop another 20%. I can't predict that the S&P 500 is going to have a significant pullback and drop all the way down to you know 1,600 points. Nobody can accurately predict these things. What we're looking for primarily is for the price of oil to stabilize. As I record this, it's about $33 a barrel. If it could stabilize somewhere between, say, $35 and $45 a barrel, then that will likely indicate that there's a soft landing in China and that overall demand will start to catch up to supply. Now, I think there's going to be some bumps along the road. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see the price of oil drop significantly below $30 a barrel. So what prudent investors do during times like this is they move forward cautiously. They've already built up their cash reserves. You've heard Jack and I talk about this for the better part of last year. I personally am keeping my money in something safe like a money market fund or a short-term treasury. I'm keeping my eyes open for opportunities, and then I'll invest accordingly. Because there won't be an economic collapse, the market will recover, and I think there'll be a chance for a significant uptrend in the economy, and particularly in the stock market, once everything resets. Because readily available and cheap commodities mean higher corporate profits. Unless there's major hostilities in the Middle East, we're probably not going to see oil get much above $50 a barrel for some time in the future. Likewise, other commodities are going to remain cheap. It's regression to the mean, back to pricing that we'd seen prior to 2005, prior to the housing bubble, prior to all the quantitative easing that's taken place. You know, right now, the price of copper is at about $2 a pound. Well, prior to 2005, copper pretty much fluctuated between $0.50 cents to about $1.50 a pound for close to a decade. I think that pre-2005 level is where we're gravitating to, and that will be a long-term regression to the mean for all these commodity prices. So when you see commodity prices starting to stabilize around those levels, I think by then it's likely that we could have a significant correction in the stock market. In my opinion, that'll probably be a great buying opportunity. Robert, thanks for your question. These are the kind of topics that I talk about on the Wealthsteading podcast, so I'd encourage you to tune in to hear my market commentary and as I discuss general wealth-building principles. 
For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. John is much more articulate at explaining commodities and financials than I am. And I tend to run a little bit more with instinct than technicals. So I'll be brief with my addition to this. I would just say that I don't think John's wrong at all, but I might be a little bit more severe in my estimation of what's coming in the next year, or if it can be punted, what will come and face our next president at this time next year. I think we're not just going to see a correction here, but an official recession. I don't think it will be as deep as the recession of 2008, 2009, because we don't have an underlying catastrophe like a mortgage meltdown in in it. It doesn't have that level of, of, of pain, I guess you'd say. And what you get then is lowered pricing on a lot of the things that people need and rely on, so therefore it's easier to navigate your way through a recession. But... I think if your job is connected directly to mining, you, you, you need to be making sure you're shoring up your, your plan B. I'm not saying you're going to get laid off or anything. I'm just saying that that's like a particular sector, um, heavy equipment manufacturing, things like that, um, are, are, are going to probably be the people that take it the biggest on the chin because they're either in the, the delivery, the extraction, the refining of the commodities that are currently dropping in price like a rock. Now, the, the upside of this, this can, as you come out of that recession into your next recovery, create a construction boom because money's going to stay cheap. The, the interest rates are not going to climb. They can't, they can't jack up the interest rates during a recession. It's not the end of the world as we know it um, this time around, and I agree with John on that. So as you kind of hit the bottom of that, skid across it for a while, and the Fed does whatever it can do to try to restart things, you may see a boom in housing construction. Because I don't think you're going to see a lot of booms in industrial construction and things like that. There's too many buildings sitting empty for that right now. But more and more people are moving as they're leaving areas. There's a, there's a mass migration going on right now. Connecticut has lost like some ungodly number of thousands of people in the last year. Uh, Illinois is losing people left and right. California is losing people, though not at the level that, that, that some of the northeastern states are and some of the midwestern states are. All those people are going to other places, and those people are coming to places like Texas and saying, I want to buy a house, and it's actually heating up our real estate market. So there's, there's a, a potential to go into the type of, of housing development boom that we had in the 90s as you come out of this one. The problem is then you have all these empty houses sitting in these other states, but that's what happens when you run your state like a moron. So, But you got to realize this is much bigger than U.S. We're just the biggest market in the world right now. But I predict commodities will continue to fall. We're not at the bottom. And you're going to see that the, the stock indexes continue to fall. And there will still be winners. There'll st the, the efficient companies that rolled through all of this stuff, uh, like Google, like Facebook, like Amazon – Right? These, these companies are going to continue to post gains and pro post profits. They may not have the upside that they did for the past five years during this recession, but they're going to be pretty stable. If you're going to be in the market at all, be in individual stocks right now and know why you're in them and have exit points, 
um, have collars that you say, at a certain point, I'm taking my profits. At a certain drop, I'm getting the hell out of it. And have a certain point where you say, if it goes up X, that I'm moving my, my exit point on a drop to Y. And, and make sure you're ensuring your profits. And that, that, that's what I'll add to that one. The next question we have is for Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. And it's, it's from a standpoint of functional fitness from a prepper viewpoint. Here you go, Gary. Tell us what you think on this one. Hey everyone, it's Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and I hope you guys had a great holiday. You didn't put on too many pounds. But uh, I have a good question again today uh, from John, who is looking to get back into shape from uh, a preparedness uh, mindset and to uh, kind of up his health. He's 35, 5'10", 175 pounds, and has a 36-inch waist. And he doesn't have a lot of resources as uh, far as money. Um, he does some good cardio as far as walking. He walks 8 to 10 miles a day for his job. So that's good. He's burning some calories every day, getting moving. Um, but in order to kind of get on track, besides that, it sounds great, but he's missing some key elements. And I want to go into, first off, uh, his waist size at 36 inches. Uh, I, I use... A, bo a key body, body measure, I use two actually, and one is at the waist um, and one is at your belly button. And I use these measurements to kind of track clients. It's the easiest way I have found to tell if we're going in the right direction because that's the place where you're going to lose or gain first. Um, with a 37-inch waist, is considered obese for males. So even though he's only 175 pounds at 5'10", he's still considered obese And having a high waist size bordering obesity, he's at a high risk for uh, cardiac heart disease. So, yeah, it's it's interesting because uh, in face value, when you look at it, he actually seems somewhat healthy, but actually he's teetering on being in a red zone of health in a bad area. So with that, in order to get him on track, what I would recommend is the fact that his waist size is, because ideal for his height at 5'10 is actually 32. A 32-inch waist size is ideal for someone 5'10. So that tells me a couple things. It tells me that he is over-consuming uh, probably sugar and processed carbohydrates, even though he says he makes most of his meals from scratch. Just because they're from scratch doesn't mean they're healthy. I can make three, you know, three pies and a stack of pancakes from scratch. And if I eat them all at once, that's still not healthy. So my guess is his ratios are off as uh, far as his protein, carbohydrates, and fat. I would recommend that he go to 25% carbohydrates, uh, 35% calories from fat, 40% calories from protein. And also he needs to implement some sort of He needs to get his heart rate up. Walking is great, but it doesn't get your heart rate up. Even at a brisk walk, it gets it up somewhat, but you want to get it kind of in that red zone. Um, it was where I like to call, and that's your maximum heart rate. And what that is, it's very simple to determine. You just take 220 and deduct your age. So he's 35, so 220 minus 35, his maximum heart rate, target heart rate is going to be, you know, 185. So he wants to get in that kind of 170, 180 range uh, to get up there. And what that does is that gets you into a, a fat, not only fat burning mode, but it also has been shown that once you get into that level, that you produce more testosterone. 
And more testosterone means that you're going to build more muscle, you can have more energy, you can have more sex drive, all those healthy good things that we like. So I would uh, recommend that he he does some high-intensity uh, interval training, which I have an article on on my blog. It's uh, just put in uh, high-intensity interval training, or HIIT, H-I-I-T, and it should pop up. But I'll basically describe it. It's going all out. This is how I do it. There's several different ways. But for 10 repetitions, you may have to probably have to work your way up to this, obviously, especially if you're a beginner. And that is you do 30 seconds all out, get your heart rate up. So for him, again, it's one to get in that 170, 180 uh, beats per minute right around there. And you do that for 30 seconds. So you're going to have to gauge what type of exercise. The best way to do it is sprinting. But if you're new to exercise, I don't recommend going out there and just doing wind sprints. Great is stationary bike. Another great one is jump rope and uh, even jumping jacks. I mean, there's you can do it with anything. You just got to get your heart rate up and really go after it. Um, swimming, you can do it swimming. Like I said, biking, stationary bike. Uh, there's many different ways. You can even run in place and do it. So with that, you do it for 30 seconds all out. Take a 30 to 60 second rest. I recommend 60 seconds if you're just starting out and you want to work up to that 30 second rest. Or, and then you do that for 10 repetitions, but like I said, you can build up. I would start with five and see how you do. You want to do that two, two times a week to get your heart rate up. Um, two to three, but two is usually fine. So he has to do that, and it's real quick. It only takes 10 minutes if you do the full series. So I'll do 30 seconds on, 30 seconds at moderate. You just don't stop. You, you still move, but you're at a moderate level. You're, you're at a cool down. And then do it for 10 repetitions. And another way I'll do it is 10 seconds on, 10 seconds off. And I'll do that for three to four minutes. So 10 seconds on, full blast, 10 seconds resting, still moving, cool down, 10 seconds. And you continue to do this. And what, what again, it's getting your heart rate up. That's what you want to do. It's humans, we were meant, meant to redline every once in a while. And that was through either hunting, chasing prey, um, sex, obviously, that gets your heart rate up, um, and ob and also being chased, you know, us being chased by predators, I mean, or, or, you know, warning tribes, I mean, we would get our heart rate up, we go into panic mode and, you know, fight or flight, so that's where that comes from, also, he needs to incorporate some resistance training, um, he does, he's on a limited budget, and that, uh, I deal with this all the time, real basic, but what he wants to do is, I recommend three to four times a week, for 20 to 30 minutes, do some resistance training. Now, you can do it with body weight. One of the best ways to do that is push-ups, um, uh, pull-ups. Pull-up bar you can make easy. You can go to a hardware store, get some galvanized pipe. You screw it right into uh, your garage wall. Make sure you screw it into some studs. You screw it in the drywall, and that's going to cause a problem. So you can do that. I've done them. Me and my friends have made them. They're super easy. I had one as a kid that was in my garage that me and my dad made. Um, cost you like 10 bucks in parts, if that. Uh, so we got, and then dips, if you can do it, dips are a little tougher. You're going to have to, you know, either have a dip bar or if you can find something outside, uh, you can do it. Um, air squats. But what I also have, that's why I sell these TNT resistance bands. I don't make whole on man. This is not a pitch. These are, I've just been using these things forever and they're the best gym at home I've ever found 
for thirty five bucks, thirty five ninety nine or something like that. I sell them for, and that's I've had my same set for over five years now, and they work fantastic. They're small, fit in a bag, and they will wear you out. I use them with uh, you know two hundred eighty pound linemen who play college football, and it's funny to watch the look on their face. They put all three bands on, and the thing about snaps back and kills them. So. That's one way. And, you know, jump rope. Jump rope is a great way, too. You can do that for high-intensity interval training as well. And I'd recommend a speed heavier rope. I have two different ropes I carry on my website. The heavier one's better for for men um, or bigger guys or women who are looking to really step it up. And then I have just a standard beaded uh, jump rope. So I think that gives him a few things to do. Uh, you know, it, it, all that, all that equipment too, is, it's under a hundred bucks. I mean, heck it's under 75 bucks and you literally have everything you need for a home gym. And the great thing about the res- TNT resistance bands is you can use, you use your door jam. Uh, it comes with a, a, uh, piece of nylon that jam goes into your door jam and you loop it through, uh, for certain exercises for chest, back. Like I said, phenomenal. One of the best inventions of home exercise equipment I've I've ever seen, and especially for the price. Uh, so I think he'll get on track there. As far as his diet, uh, I, like I said, I would go back to those ratios. I would really watch his fructose intake, you know, from fruit, high fructose corn syrup in, in any processed foods. He says he's eliminating, uh, you know, fast food. Uh, fast food's the easiest way to obesity. It's uh, nutritionally, you know, defunct. I mean, there's really not a whole lot of nutrition in fast food. So I hope that helps. And I hope, John, that gives you kind of a basic starting plan from where to go. And if you guys have any questions, feel free to hit me on the comments or contact at primalpowermethod.com. Thanks a lot. Uh, Final question of the day for Stephen Harris is a question on butane and propane stoves. Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer a question. Question was emailed to me from Matt. Matt says, Steve, I have a question about butane. What do you think about butane stoves? Uh, you asked me, you're going to get it. <laughs> what do you think about them being used indoors? I haven't seen you mention anything about them. Are they less safe than propane? Speaking of propane, you recommend propane stoves as part of an emergency kit. I've done some research on propane, but I'm still a little worried about using them indoors due to what I'm guessing are misconceptions I've read online. I know about carbon monoxide poisoning, but I'm also afraid of burning my building down. Hmm. I'd like to hear your understanding uh, is because you're an expert. I live in an apartment. He's an apartment dweller, people, and would rather not cook outdoors as it would advertise my capabilities to my neighbors. So he wants to be stealth. That's good. Run silent, run deep. Do you have any books you sell that pertain to apartment dwellers like myself? Sincerely, Matt. Matt, no, I don't have any books. Um, writing a book takes a great deal of time. Making a video takes a lot less uh, amount of time. If you want a book, if you want to read about preparedness and what to do, go through all of my 1234 websites. You can get to them all from stephen1234.com. And I have over 500 things up there listed from Amazon. Now, I just didn't like copy and paste the description over from Amazon to my website. I wrote all the descriptions myself. 
Why? Because I own those items, or I own a version of those items, and I've used those items. I tell you what they're good for, what they're not good for, what their advantages are, what their disadvantages are. So if you really want a mini preparedness lesson, just start going through and reading about all the different things I have on the 1, 2, 3, 4 websites, because that will be a whole preparedness class in its own. Now, you live in an apartment. I don't know if you got kids, dogs, ferrets, furry animals, twitty birds, or anything else. I don't know if you're in a third floor basement or whatever, but the point is you do. And if you go through and read what I tell you in those descriptions, you can go, okay, that'll work for me. I like that. No, I don't need that. Don't need that. I like that. So I'm not writing something for you. I'm empowering you to go and make the decisions yourself. And that's what you get on the 1234 websites. Now, here's a question about butane stoves versus propane stoves. As far as you're concerned, butane, butane, propane, and natural gas all burn the same. Okay? There's a different chemical formula between butane and propane, uh, but that's inconsequential to the function. Butane is lower pressure. It comes in thinner, smaller cans, and is generally more expensive. They are used by people who are doing ultralight backpacking type of things and you know they're only going out for one night or two nights and so one little thing of fuel will work for them propane is a lot more affordable and it comes in a thicker heavier container because propane's at a higher pressure and you can get them off the shelf at walmart i prefer propane over butane it's a better container uh it's the stoves are cheap they're off the shelf at walmart you got to go to rei to get the butane stuff and I just go with propane. Just take my word for it, okay? You can go to Walmart and you can get propane stoves. You can get single burners, double burners that sit flat. You can get the propane bottles, the, the one-pound green bottles. You can get them all at Walmart. Just go down to your local Walmart and get it. If you want, they're also on Amazon. You can go to prep, P-R-E-P-1234.com. You can find I have them listed up there as well. But go to Walmart, get them, touch them, use them, play with them. If you don't like it, take them back. So, um, about the carbon monoxide issue, think about it. People have propane stoves in their house. They live out in the country, they have a big propane pig outside, and that propane feeds the stove that's burning on the burners in their house, and it's also running their natural, their propane furnace, and it's also in running the propane oven. So if it's safe for that to be used inside of your house, why is it any different for a propane stove to be used from Walmart inside your house? The answer is it's not any different. Those lawyers put all of those carbon monoxide warnings on those things to be used outside because of legal reasons and liability regions in our litigious <coughs> lawsuit uh, lifestyle we're, li- we're living. As long as it's burning with a blue flame, you're okay. How much carbon monoxide is coming off? Basically, as far as you're concerned, zero. I mean, I have a parts per million carbon monoxide meter, and it does not even move when I use propane, butane, or even gasoline or Coleman-fueled stoves inside the house. It's not generating carbon monoxide. You know what generates a lot of carbon monoxide? An alcohol stove does, okay? You know what? There's more carbon monoxide coming off a candle because it's burning with a yellow flame than it is off the blue flames of your stoves on the inside. So propane, go ahead, use it inside, be stealth. If you want to, put it on top of your regular stove in your cooking area, and there will be no difference. 
So you're afraid of burning your building down. Oh, well, why are you afraid you're building your build, burning your building down? Are you afraid of burning your building down with a candle? No. Why? Because you're used to it. You're familiar with it. You've used it all your life. Speaking of which, FEMA and the Red Cross no longer tell you to use candles because they're too dangerous. They don't trust you with a candle. Think they're going to trust you with a gun. So anyways, um, what you need to do is you need to get the propane stove and you need to start using it in your apartment. Put it on top of your stove and light it and use it to boil some water, make some noodles, make some soup, heat some stuff up, and get familiar with it. Get a good dozen hours on it. Now you got single bottle propane burners and they will they'll come with a base that the propane bottle goes into and the burner screws on the top and they're a little bit more stable, but still it's like if you got a pot on top it's a little tippy. So if you don't like the single burner propane stoves, and I love them, then go to Walmart and get a dual burner propane stove. They're flat. They sit right on the counter, and the propane bottle's off on the side, not holding the burners up. And this won't tip over, and you should be damn familiar and comfortable with it. Remember, all of you, I want you to have a dozen hours of cooking on a propane or butane stove or whatever your method is, I want you to have a dozen hours on it in your house. So it's not just, do you need it? Does it work? It's, can you repeat it under stress? When the lights are out and you got a flashlight or a headlamp on, the kids are screaming, they're hungry, your wife's complaining to you, can you open up your preparedness stuff, put it into a pot on top of a propane burner while there's thunder and lightning outside and half the house is ripped away from a tornado? Can you do it underneath that stress? Can you repeat it from what we call unconscious competence. That's the whole thing. You want to know about more about unconscious competence? Go to Wikipedia. It's a great read. So play with it. Use it. Get used to it. No matter what you pick, go with it. Propane will work fine. Make sure you're used to a propane stove as you are a candle. You'll be comfortable with it. You can use it inside of your apartment. You don't need to crack a window. You don't need to do anything. As long as it's burning blue, you are going to be absolutely perfectly okay. So, this is Steve Harrisford, Expert Panel. I have a secret new 1234 website coming out. And I have a beautiful photo up there of everything you never, ever thought about for a bug-out bag. I said stuff you never thought about, not the stuff you thought about. It's bugout1234.com. <laughs> I know you'd love that, Jack. And uh, video is coming soon with over 84 different items in it. If you want to be alerted the moment the video comes out, go sign up for my email list at the very, very top of steven1234.com. And I hope I answered your question. Guys, keep on emailing them to Jack and sending them to him or me. I love it. I'll talk to you guys in a week or so. Bye. Great stuff from Steve. And, I mean, it's it's the first thing I think of when somebody says to me, well, I'm afraid to use one of these cookers indoors. Uh, often, I, I've even heard that from people who have a, a, a either a natural gas or propane stove. I had a conversation one time where a guy said that, you know, don't you worry about cooking with those things in the house. And I looked over at his stove, and I just looked at it, and I didn't say anything for a second. He looks at it, and he goes, well, there's a, there's a, a vent hood there. And I looked at it, and it's like mine. He doesn't have a true vent hood. He's got a filter just to keep smoke and stuff down. doesn't actually have an outdoor vent. So, yeah, you can use these things indoors. I also agree with two big things that Steven said. Uh, one being the reason people worry about it is because they don't, they're not familiar with it. You like candles. I mean, most of us like, you know, he said FEMA doesn't want us using candles anymore. FEMA can very well shove it up their ass. All right? I mean, 
I, I'm a tea light freak. If my wife drags me to a craft store, we're leaving with a bag of tea lights. And she's like, don't we have enough of those? I'm like, nope. You make me go to MJ Designs, I'm getting a bag of tea lights. That's, that's my, that's my exchange rate there. So I love candles. I think they're great. Uh, so it's a familiarity thing. And then the other thing is to use them. Um, I'll go beyond 12 hours. I'll tell you, especially if you have an electric stove, you should have one of these things. And I have one I personally recommend that I think is about the best one you can get. It's not the cheapest one you can get. You can get them for, you know, 30 bucks, 20 bucks, 40 bucks range. Um, this one's a hundred bucks, $98 in free shipping on Amazon Prime. And I'll have a link to this and my, my best recommendation for a cheaper one which I don't really recommend. I'll, I'll leave it at that, okay? Um, this is by Camp Chef, and they make good stuff, and this is no exception to that. This is a good stove. And there's a couple things I want to add to this. Number one, if you are stuck with an electric stove, get one of these. I mean, get the one I'm recommending. Put put a, a, a stove savings jar on the shelf and cut a couple bucks in it so you can afford it if you can't afford it now because it will change the way you cook. It will be like all of a sudden you have gas service to your house as far as you're cooking. And you'll find yourself setting this thing up somewhere like if you have a covered porch or deck, you'll end up setting it up out there. You'll end up like when it's nice days, you'll go outside and cook because you will enjoy cooking on this thing more than you will any electric stove infinity. Okay? That's that's what I'm going to say. So for lifestyle as well, I just think this is a great choice. And I think it's it's nice. If you want to make some eggs and it's on like a Saturday, you're making brunch and you're frying up some potatoes and eggs and making some like, uh, you know, like egg tacos or something for breakfast. How much nicer is it to like take the, you know, the French press outside, dump some hot water and make some fresh coffee and sit there and be outdoors while you're cooking, right? So I just think there's that. But the other side of it is, if you have an electric stove and the power goes off, you ain't cooking like you normally cook. And this particular stove, it will cook beautifully for you. But if you just want to boil some water, this thing will smoke boil water. Like like you won't believe how quick it will get a small amount of water up to boil. So you could be there cooking your eggs, boiling your pot of water, dumping that in your French press, making your coffee... And you can be doing that outside just because it's a nice day or because power's out and you just don't care. And it's pretty efficient with its use of propane. And uh, I, I just think it is the the best, you know, somewhat affordable model out there. Again, it's the Camp Chef Ranger 2 tabletop stove. There'll be a link in the show notes. It'll go to a post I just did about it on Facebook. And in there will be, like, my, my choice if you have to go cheap, if you have to go down... Uh, to a lower cost product, and the one I recommend if you if you want to keep it under fifty bucks is the uh, Sportsman Double Burner Outdoor Cast Iron Propane Stove. It does say outdoors, okay, but you could certainly use it indoors. And uh, it's a little bit bigger, it's a little bit bulkier, it is not as well reviewed, and it's actually been discontinued by the manufacturer. But of the stuff that I've actually used at that lower price point, it was the best thing I could find. And my 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 recommendation is, if you can afford forty bucks for this now, save up another sixty bucks, and when you're ready, buy the other one and use it, get experience with it. I think that it's one of the best investments you can make in your preparedness, and it follows my credo. 
living a better life right now, today, if times get tough, or even if they don't. You will like cooking with this thing, okay? Uh, you'll like it so much that even if you have a gas stove, if you get it and, and set up your little outdoor kitchen area to cook outdoors, you'll like it for that. It's, it's, it's that good. It's that good. All right, so ready to close up for the week, and it's the weekend. And I know a lot of people out there are always working for the weekend. So we're going to go back to, I think it's 1981 was when the song came out. This song came out in a weird time for American music. We were transitioning from 70s rock to 80s pop. And there was this, like, this merger point from about 78 to about 82 Where you, when you hear a song from that era, if you don't know exactly when it was made, you're not really sure. Is that late 70s or early 80s? And uh, music kind of metamorphosized through that. And this is an example of that. It has sounds of, of 70s rock. But it has definitely, it's, it's more elemental structure is 80s pop. Why does that matter? It doesn't. I just wanted to kind of point that out. The real reason I'm playing this song is counter to what the song's actually about. The song's more about finding relationships, right? Everybody's watching you, hoping you show up, that type of thing, and everybody wants a second chance, and you know, the weekend is when you get a chance to go out and look for that significant other. And when you're 22 years old and single, it is. It is. But I think the reason the song took off and became a hit was because everybody is working for the weekend. Whether you're an 18-year-old kid, you know, working that, that first job and, and working for the weekend because you're going to go out and just hang out, or you're, you're, you're looking for that girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, or you get a little older and you have kids, and now it's about being home, being with your kids. Um, I think everybody that has a job works for the weekend. Like, that's it. I get those two days off. I get to be home, you know? And I remember a time in my life where I worked seven days a week for eight weeks, And I think out of that eight-week period, I had Sunday off once. And this was during football season. I wasn't happy about it. But it was a time of my life when I had you know, to do that. It was very early in Dorothy and, and, and my relationship. And it was about you know getting through that period with this company that I was working for and developing the, the, the skills and all. And boy, I'll tell you what. When I went back to a regular schedule, wow, I appreciated that weekend a lot more. So... It is the weekend, and I want you to enjoy it. So that's one reason I picked this song. The other reason I picked this song is I no longer work for the weekend. I no longer work for the weekend, and I think that's a really a big deal. And I have to tell you that going from working a seven-day work week and not having weekends off, and even in that period, I had a lot of six-day work weeks where your weekend was Sunday. Um, I had a lot of time in the military was deployed, and you basically had one day off, or and you really couldn't go anywhere. And So I've had times of my life... Uh, when I was a contractor for MCI, there was one week we worked 105 hours, and then the next week there was a hurricane in New Orleans, and so we stayed, not that hurricane, the much earlier hurricane, and uh, though it didn't do anywhere near the damage to the city uh, that, that Katrina did, it, it caused a lot of problems for the phone service, so the next week we worked like another 100 plus hour week. Uh, and I was away from home and living in a hotel. And so I've had those experiences and then, you know, being liberated to have a job that is a, a you know, not, I've never had a 40 hour week job, I think, in my life, but a five day a week job is amazing. It, it makes you never want to go back to those days. Well, I, I can tell you guys that when you transition to working for yourself, especially in a way that you can work from home and do what you love, it's, it's a bigger, it's a bigger thing for you. And when, I, when, I, when I'm playing this song for you today, and the reason I'm talking about this here at the end 
is I want to encourage you guys that that actually want that. Because not everybody does. Some people are very happy working for the weekend. Okay? But a lot of you want that that extra thing, that that control of your own life, that control of your own destiny. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard. It takes sacrifice. It takes giving up some of the things you love for now so that you can have them later. It is difficult. People don't understand you when you're doing it. They don't understand the drive. They 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 want you to stop doing that. You know, come back over here where it's comfortable. Let me tell you, it's absolutely one thousand percent worth it. So for now, work for the weekend. But in your mind, make working for the weekend working for your freedom and your liberty. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.